Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you to Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. road in Drumcondra towards the Royal Canal and you'll find yourself crossing a metal bridge over the train tracks. It was on this bridge that a childhood friend recalled first setting eyes on one Jeremiah James Dominic O'Leary, known to all as Jer. He was tall, he was rangy and he was loud and he strode towards him singing the 1958 hit Poi d'improvviso venivo dal vento rapito e incominciavo a volare nel cielo infinito. It was in this corner of this neighbourhood of central North Dublin in the early 1960s that local boys set up what they called Whitworth Celtic, their football team, named for the road where they gathered to play on a stretch of bank along the Royal Canal as it runs behind the storied Victorian jail, Mountjoy Prison. Here's Richard Collins, that childhood friend of Jers, describing the time. I went to school in Vincent, St Vincent's in Glasnevin, and... Jer was a couple of years ahead of me and two of the chaps in third class with me in the primary, John McNamee and Philip Colgan, were always at me to come down and play football on Claude Road off the Whitworth Road and I eventually went down and joined the Claude Road gang and the Claude Road gang eventually joined the Lower Columbus Road gang of whom Jer was a member and we formed team called Whitwood Celtic. Ger O'Leary's memorable first impression on Richard was typical, because no one who came across him ever forgot him. He was to become a Dublin legend, a trade unionist imprisoned for his involvement in an IRA hold-up, Ireland's foremost artist of union banners, and an actor who worked alongside Hollywood stars like Richard Harris and Daniel Day-Lewis in Oscar-nominated films of a golden age of Irish cinema from the late 1980s and 90s as well as appearing in more recent TV shows like Game of Thrones. But as we discussed in our previous episode about the 1913 lockout, which you should listen back to if you haven't heard it, 
O'Leary's most famous role was at the trade unionist and revolutionary Jim Larkin, who he portrayed in the theatres and in the streets. Joe O'Leary died in 2018, but before that, he gave an interview to the Irish Passport podcast. These rare tapes are, to our knowledge, the only interview Ger ever gave discussing his life and work. It took place in Easter week, 2017, in Bram Stoker Park in Fairview. It's the hemicircle of trees and grass by the North Dublin seafront that's named by the author of Dracula, who once lived nearby. My name is Ger O'Leary, uh, short for Jeremiah with a J, and I was born and raised in the north side of Dublin, in Drumcondra. My father was a bartender, so he was basically a working class stock. He was a bartender in Gapneys for most of his life, from Fairview, where we are. My mother was of the same stock, and I went to St Vincent's School in Glasnevin, which I left quite early, uh, only 14 or so, for various different reasons. Some to do with uh, being a bit more of a rebel school than I should have been. I kind of walked on my own toes, which is how it should be. Because I felt I had justifications for it, that I was a rebel with a cause rather than a rebel without a cause, which was all the thing at the time, because it was the James Dean era. <laughs> what was your cause? Well, my cause basically, uh, I couldn't uh, handle a stand, a lot of the brutality that was coming from the teachers. And I was outraged by this. And now, it was pretty much the normal design. There other people outraged by it all, but I kind of stood up a bit about it and that, you know, and I, I was more or less invited to leave. I was told that, listen, it's too troublesome, kind of, and all this. And if you leave now in good stead, we'll give you a good, what do you call it, uh, like a report. Yeah, 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 that you can bring news for a job. But if you don't, you'll be expelled anyway, and you won't have that. You were 13? 14. Uh, so I was, in, I was about halfway through second year going for the intermediate, you know. What were the teachers doing? They were just beating up the people? Oh, they were, yeah, they were, they were, they were, corporal punishment like, was actually in then. It was the law, although they extended it. And I don't mean just the Christian brothers. You get the Christian brothers getting the main blame for this, and some of them were to blame indeed. But a lot of the ordinary teachers, masters, they were just as bad and worse in some cases I can think of and you would have expected better from them, you would have thought they would have had more sensitivity because a lot of them were uh, husbands and fathers themselves with children some of them were just as bad as the Christian brothers who had no experience of that of course, you know so it was mainly to do with all that I'm not saying that was the only thing now, but I probably wasn't a great scholar. I remember not, not being very attentive. I have to admit, I was very poor in things like uh, arithmetic and algebra and all of that. I was always looking out the window. I think I was a bloody actor from day one. I was always kind of looking out the window, visualizing scenarios, you know, and I should have been really listening to the tutors. I do remember that, I have to admit that. Maybe I was a frustrated actor from day one, I don't know. But uh, also, I was always kind of sketching, when I should have been, and getting belts over the back of the night, but sketching things when I should have been writing out songs or something. Have you seen Dublin change over the years? Well, I have now. I'm 71 now, and I've noticed there has been, of course, major changes. I believe that up to my when I was young in the 50s, Dublin hadn't really changed that much in the previous, apart from new things, of course, like electrification and trams, the buses, and the, there was people who could have walked around the centre of Dublin uh, 100 years earlier. But there's been huge, huge changes, basically since the 60s up. 
and some of them for uh, the better, but a lot not, as the song has it in Dublin City, the rare old times, or in Dublin town in 1962. Yeah, they closed the Royal, for instance, you know. Absolute diabolical shame, as they say. The heart of Dublin. That's the Theatre Royal, a cinema, entertainment and theatre venue located in a vast Art Deco building on Hawkins Street in central Dublin. It had its own orchestra, it hosted international stars of music and theatre, and it gave Jer his first exposure to art, as his friend Richard's dad was a scene painter there. Sadly, the building was demolished in the 1960s and replaced by the deeply ugly office complex that housed the government's Department of Health. Jer recalls what it was like to go to the live shows as a child in the 1950s. That actually held over 3,000 people. It's only four, I think, possibly. And every major artist, actor, uh, player and singer in the world came to the Royal, you know. There was only two shillings in, remember, in old Florida. And on a Sunday night, for two shillings, you go with your mammy and daddy, and they were nine or ten or eleven or two, and you got a full film, and you got a full live show. Like, it was... Where would you get <laughs> I asked Jer about how he got into acting, and he told me it was politics that led him to the stage, rather than the other way around. Central to this story was his friendship with another Whitworth Celtic football player, a boy they called Shay, who grew up to be the film director Jim Sheridan, now known for his films such as My Left Foot and In the Name of the Father. But in the 1970s, he was an emerging figure in radical theatre. Jur's route into acting was the non-stop Connolly show, a piece of political theatre staged in the trade union headquarters Liberty Hall, which enacted scenes from the life of the revolutionary leader James Connolly in one-hour acts that lasted through the night. It was aimed to engage contemporary audiences with this history as the 60th anniversary approached of the 1916 Easter Rising. At the time, Jur was involved with the labour movement and was well known around Liberty Hall. By the time I did any acting, I was 28, or no, I was actually 30. It was 1975, and I had never done anything before, not even a school play, not any street theatre or anything like that. And Jim Sheridan was actually the very first adult direction of anything. And he knew me, and I knew him through playing football for the same team together. Actually, the young lady that interviewed me, her uncle played for the same team, Brian. And uh, Whitwood Celtic was her name, or the glorious Whitwood Celtic is a weird thing to say around. Anyway, uh, Jim, they wanted somebody to play Larkin who was not a known actor. They wanted somebody who would look historically correct for it. But he also knew there had a big booming voice like Larkin, but he heard me shouting at referees and goalkeepers over the years. Mainly at our own goalkeeper, you know, giving out if we're not taking my prospects, which wasn't easy, mind you. But in any way, as we say on the north side, we did about three or four weeks of rehearsals. Quite a lengthy part for somebody doing the first time. Like, it was no spear carrier walking on like at the Abbey stage where you, you would normally start off with that. And you would have had two or three years in drama school at the time now, you know. Not patting myself in the back of that. But I always remember, because I counted, there was 333 lines is lacking in it, which is quite extensive for the first time. It was supposed to be 24 hours. Now, there was gaps of interval between. There were six major plays, and there was gaps of an hour or two between each play. But the whole thing went, which was supposed to last over Easter Saturday night and Sunday morning, 
lasted 26 and a half hours, and I actually got into the Guinness Book of Records in the 2000 Bicentenary uh, Edition as the longest play ever portrayed anywhere in the world. Staged at a time of political ferment, when conflict in Northern Ireland was at its height, the play drew a packed audience and was hailed as a landmark of radical theatre. Its success took the cast to Belfast for a reenactment, and the only venue deemed safe enough to host it was Queen's University. Nobody walked out and nobody got shot, Ger recalls, although he, Jim Sheridan and a group of the cast did find themselves in hot water on board a bus to the university when Sheridan accidentally spoke aloud in a deep Dublin accent. It went so well, and then we went to Belfast with a height of the troubles. That was um, a seriously The only place you could put it on uh, for security reasons in the main was actually in Queen's University, uh, which is an unusual thing. Some of the, I don't know what some of the dons and that thought of it, because it was basically very uh, pro-worker, anti-establishment, etc., like, you know, any kind. And we'd know, uh, nobody walked out of and, and nobody got shot, as they say. Oh. Just as well. And, uh, just as well. <laughs> also remember Jim, Shay, as we called him, nobody is to speak in a Dublin accent, he said. There's only just do the talking. And he says, I'll put on a country accent. And the four of us got on a bus, and... He must have gotten, he says to the, uh, the driver, Forrest Hubbany's play is completely bad. The amount of people on the bus, look, it was no mobile phones at the time with them, somebody ring, ringing ahead. You know, the stairs we were getting, looking at it was only about four stops up the Queens. Anyway, that I was stuck in my mind, afraid of our lives. So anyway. you, you were just, you were literally afraid because of the Dublin accents and the way people yes, were looking at it. Well, the minute they heard the Dublin accent, like anything south at all would be enough. But it was the right that we were, we were looked on Irish, Catholic, Republican, mad Fenians. That's <laughs> immediately the way they, they, that's why those people looking at you earlier. <laughs> we were just players, strolling players. Although some of us would have had political context, but it wasn't, it wasn't the thing at the time anyway. Ger was to reprise the role of the union organiser Jim Larkin in an adaptation of The Risen People a play by James Plunkett that told the story of one family's struggle to survive during the 1913 Dublin lockout, the mass industrial dispute that shaped Irish history and which we discussed in our last episode. Plunkett Kelly and Jim Sheridan got together and they did a complete, Jim did a complete redirection with new ideas and he put in Dublin street ballads and all the rest and it really helped at the time and this ordinary Dublin singer who was not professional at all, Mary Fleming, and she totally perfect, lilting, Dublin shawly kind of vibe, mostly rosier type of voice for the songs that were played in. And also, he added things like a bell on an almost Greek chorus of workers surrounding William Martin Murphy and all this. And it went great. It, it, it ran for six, seven weeks in the party with one empty seat. That was 1976. Then it was revived twice in 78 and in 1980 for also for the sense of Ireland show London. So I went to the West End in in London. It never had one empty seat in all those productions and it ran for six, seven weeks each time, you know, so it was a great one to be in. You get a great rapport and a great boon back from the audience when it when it's like that, when the house is electric like that almost every night. You know, so it's a big thing when you're on live. I've been in plays, numerous plays where like there'd be more of a cast on stage than in the audience, you know, and that's they can be pretty hard, like, you know, but uh, you still have to give you a best shot. Ger was known to sing a tune in pubs or at parties, 
and it was once again his big booming voice that led to acting work, as he was heard at a house party singing The Foggy Dew, a ballad about the Easter Rising, and the Dublin folk tune Three Lovely Lasses from Kimmage. He recalls learning these songs when he was growing up in the city's so-called singing pubs. It led to his being cast in My Left Foot, the critically acclaimed tale of a young man with cerebral palsy that came the breakout film for director Jim Sheridan and led to Oscars for both its leading actors, Daniel Day-Lewis and Brenda Fricker. Left foot went so well. First Irish film ever to get Oscar nominated for anything. And then it won too. It, it went great. It went around the world. It went down really well in America. So I had only small partners started the row in the pub after the funeral. Just to be in it was a great boost. It was a great boost to anybody's start. You know, in film, you got, even though it was only a few minutes. The main reason he had me in it, of course, again, was because uh, the boom and voice. He wanted somebody who knew three lovely lassies from Kimmage, the song, and a, a, a great old Dublin song, a street ballad. And he also wanted somebody who knew the foggy Jew. And I was the only one that kind of knew it, because he'd heard me singing it as a party piece in his own house at 78 Ballybock Road at the time when he moved in. And I was at his house while we only lived around the corner of Bayview Avenue. And I sang it at that, and I also sang the other one. And he heard that, and he, put, he just thought that it got down well or something very Dublin-esque to show Dublin to the rest of the world, like, in a, in a good way, you know? So, uh, Would you give us a verse from now, or...? Well, I'd like to see now... Uh, it was down that lemon Easter morn to a city fair road The armored lines of marching men in squadrons passed No faith did hum, no His father was nothing but a mount. Like all the Browns. All right, lad. Take it easy. Respect for Don. I don't fight cripples. Where did you learn that one? Well, just learned this basically in the pubs of Dublin when we were growing up. There would have been, in the old singing pub, you, you would have had, but Dublin's not really famous for you. you. People come here all over the world and they give me pubs to sing them, but there's more of them now than there was then. There was a lot of pubs singing was taboo in. The, the landlords used to say it led to rows. We used to stop rows. Some people say, but the pubs like the O'Donoghue's and that, now you want the Blue Lion gun now, and Pernod Street, and the Grave Diggers, and the Peacock and Marble Street. the world and see we'd made that field and your sons 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 will take care of it boy. the next adventure was the 1990 film the field 
for which Richard Harris was to receive an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Outsiders. Are these the same outsiders who drove us to the coffin ships and scattered us to the four corners of the earth? No outsider will beat for my field. It was shot in Connemara, and Durr recalls the generosity of the late actor in throwing lavish parties, not just for the crew, but also for the local villagers and farmers, despite, Durr recalls, Harris being sober at the time. So I was in that as a head book tinker, with a big shock of red hair at the time and a big red moustache. Lovely to be in it, so we were down there for about five weeks. But we got on great with the locals and all, you know, you think you might now, a big camera crew coming in like that. And uh, It was about 170 nearly, I think, of the crew all together, you know, huge operation. And anyway, Harris was, he was great fun, but he was out to drink for about nine years at the time. He was a bit on edge, but it never stopped him in his generosity, I have to say it as we have, now he's not there to answer for himself. R.I.P. Richard. Even though he was off to drink himself, he hadn't, unlike a lot of people who do that, after being on it all, uh, they get the zeal of the convert, and they think that just because they're off and nobody else should be drinking, you know? But to be fair to Harris, he put on three full, three hoolies, not only for all the cast and crew while we were there, but for all the local villagers and farmers as well. <laughs> and he thought he would have cost about seven or eight grand, like, you know, in the Rinvoil Hotel, at least... He used to say, nobody would have freebie like that. People who are normally drinking, say, a small parents go labor are drinking trebles, you know. And people would normally drink six or seven pints a night, are drinking 16. So we so had a very generous spirit. We got on ground with him anyway, and Hortz was great. But Jura Leary's biggest audience of all was something very different. It was playing the role of Jim Larkin at political events in which he would typically give the famous speech that the union leader delivered to the striking workers in the 1913 Dublin lockout. William Martin Murphy and his ilk actually believed, so they said, that Christ died for the poor, that we may be content in our poverty, and for the rich, that they may be sustained without threat to their possessions. God, said William Martin Murphy, is a good investment. Hunger, said William Martin Murphy, is a good source. But our God is the God of deliverance. And the hunger that we have awakened shall not be satisfied by bread alone. In tune with the ideas that motivated the non-stop Connolly show, which was intended as political engagement through theatre, Jur said he did not really have to act when delivering Larkin's speech. It was from the heart. In our recent episode on the Dublin lockout, we featured Jur's discussion of the politics in Jim Larkin and his importance as a figure for the Irish left. I asked him why it was important to him personally to give that speech. I would have been doing Larkin here and there over the years on different, you know, marches and on parades for unemployment marches or this strike or that strike. I would have spoken to a far bigger crowd ever at the GPO than I ever did, say, in a play. You've kind of 
kept this tradition alive of giving the speech and impersonating yeah. Jim Larkin and yeah. the inspirational figure that he remains for the labor movement in strike after strike, every sort of historic, you know, moment that there's been over the years and kind of in uh, political activism, you've been there impersonating Jim Larkin. Well, a lot of them. Even when there wasn't a strike on, we, we do it, you know, maybe AGMs or union picnics or whatever, like, you know. There's the two ends with me. One, I was that way, clearly inclined anyway, before I, and socially inclined, before I came in to do an night and all. So, but the two things reverberated off each other in that part of it is on doing an acting performance, all right, on one hand. But I'm doing it's from the heart. It's, I don't have have to act. You know what I mean? <laughs> that it's natural because I was that way anyway in client. I mean, I loved them myself. That was the first time I found out about them. So it's a labour of love. And indeed, Jure's political convictions were not just theatre. The background and context to the plays and films that he acted in was the conflict that had broken out in 1969 when a brutal crackdown on marches for civil rights for the marginalised Catholic population of Northern Ireland led to furious rioting, families being burned out and driven from their homes and the British Army being sent in. This was the start of the so-called Troubles, the decades of conflict between Republican and Loyalist paramilitaries and state forces that was to kill thousands in a spiral of tit-for-tat violence. I knew that Jur had spent time in prison for paramilitary involvement, but I didn't have the full story. Jur's childhood friend Richard filled me in on what happened, the trial that followed, and how Jur ended up behind the crumbling walls of Mount Joy, just across the canal from where he had played football as a child. He was a member of the official IRA at the time, and they held up Wynn's Hotel in Abbey Street in Dublin for funds, and Ger was acting as rear gunner, so to speak, while the rest of them made their escape, and a chap tackled him with a chair, and Ger being Ger, of course, wouldn't shoot the guy, and fired, he had an automatic weapon, and fired a few rounds into the ceiling, but the chap kept coming, and hit Jer over the head with the chair and Jer was arrested and the rest of them all escaped. When he was being brought to hospital, the guys in the ambulance gave him every chance to escape because they knew him and Jer knew everybody. And he said, no, I'll only get you guys into trouble. And uh, so he ended up sometime later in Green Street Court famous old court dating back generations to Victorian time. Jerry used to always tell me that he was standing in the dock when I came through the door and the Angelus was ringing. And he always used to find this extremely humorous over the years. Would tell me about this sighting of me entering in the middle of the court case and the Angelus going in the background from Houghton Street Church. One of the features of the trial was that the prosecution were trying to maintain that it was it was not a political act or event. And his barrister asked whether any members of the special branch in the courtroom, he asked the witness, the guard a witness, and the entire upper balcony of the court was filled with special branch guys. And the guy 
giving the witness statement under oath, said no. A lot of people laughed, I think, at that particular piece of evidence. The Irish Times has reported that Gerard joined the IRA before the outbreak of the Troubles, when it was one organisation with an aim of uniting Ireland north and south into a socialist republic. After the violence broke out in the north, disagreements over how to respond led to a split in the movement, and Ger remained with the Marxist faction that became known as the official IRA. Ger did not open up to me about this period of his life, except to make an oblique reference with his characteristic humour. I did a film for Peter Sheridan and Jim's brother about Brendan Bean. I wasn't Brendan Bean, no. I was playing this uh, usual second IRA man or something, you know. Second volunteer. You tend to be to be cast as IRA. I've been typecast in that way as well. Uh, we won't go into the, the whys and wherefores. That was uh, a long time ago. He was sentenced to, I think it was either seven or nine years. I can't remember. It was quite a, a very lengthy sentence anyway. But the judge put in a provision that he would review the sentence after three years. Everyone was afraid that the old judge would die before the three years were up. That was around the time of the 1977 election where Fianna Fáil slipped into power with a big majority and we all voted Fianna Fáil probably for the first time in order to make sure Ger got out because a Fianna Fáil government would have been more sympathetic to a Republican situation, so to speak, in Ger's case. He used to get out at weekends coming towards the end of the sentence and we were out drinking this Saturday night up in Angel Street at one of those singing pubs, gang of us, and he suddenly announced, God, I'm supposed to be back at 12 o'clock. And we all piled into my car and I remember you could actually drive right up to the door of Mountjoy Jail at the time. There was a little avenue up there and I remember screeching to a halt outside the the gates of Mount Joy, and Ger scrambled out of the car and knocked on the door. <laughs> it was about, I don't know, 10 past 12 probably or something. And, and a couple of the, land, the, the uh, officers came out and gave him a slap on the back and said, oh, don't be worrying your grand, Ger, come on. So he was a very popular guy actually in the jail. I remember visiting him on a couple of occasions. And on one occasion, one of the guards asked me, where's the cigarettes? And I wasn't prepared. I said, how do you mean? He said, where's the cigarettes for Jer? And I only had a half-empty packet of Sweet Afton. So that's all I could contribute at the time, unfortunately. The period in prison was a turning point for Jer, because for the first time he had access to art classes. On his release, he began entering art competitions run by his trade union. Soon he began to be commissioned to make banners for trade unions all over Ireland. Large, intricate and colourful portrayals of famous leaders, slogans and symbols to be used at marches and rallies. I, was always, I thought it was a good sketch and I never kind of pursued it either. Didn't have the money to go to art school or anything basically, you know what I mean? So I would have loved to. But in later life it turned around that... I happened to win three art competitions in the union, or just for the union members, but the union members, uh, hundreds of thousands of members of that union, it was the biggest union in the country, and uh, so I won it three years in a row. So out of that, Mickey Mullen, uh, famous Mickey Mullen, Senator Mickey Mullen, uh, was general secretary at the time, he commissioned me to do this load of banners. And that's how I got into them. So eventually it did come uh, to fruition. But it was basically all... Uh, uh, not, 
blowing hard about it, but it was basically all self-taught. And I came up with a few new ideas to help my good wife, Edna, who was very helpful in this, and she was a great embroiderer, so she was able to embroider a lot, because I wouldn't have been able to afford to go, in the initial stage, wouldn't have been able to afford to go to, you know, some big machine shop or factory, or that type of thing. So the original banners were very basic, but I got commission from Mickey Mono Liberty Hall to do it. 30 banners for Liberty Hall, which was great. And uh, out of that then, other unions saw them and liked them. So I got to do them for uh, practically every second union in the country, you know, or more. So the people who were judging the art competition were the likes of Noel Sheridan, who was director of the National College of Art, the NCAD. After this then, he invited me up and gave me the full free the big room up there, basically a studio in the art college. And then at one side where there's so many banners done, they actually did a banner exhibition in the art college. So I eventually did actually get to the, in a roundabout way, I got to the NCAD in later life. So I had to stop doing the theatre one side because getting so many banners doing it. Take up morning, noon and night. Like, and I was also in a day job just to keep the family fed, etc. You know, and keep a roof over there. I was in a day job all the time in the Eastern Health Board as I was then. Throughout his life, Ger worked as a hospital porter. But his work making banners became so prolific that the writer Fintan O'Toole once described Irish protest marches as moving exhibitions of Ger O'Leary's art. The banners were compiled in a book by the North Inner City Folklore Project in 1994 called Ger O'Leary's Banners of Unity, Handcrafted Banners of the Labour and Progressive Movement. I took along a copy to discuss the banners with Ger, including one that depicts the 1913 Dublin lockout. It's a print of a famous photograph of the Baton Charge on O'Connell Street, then called Sackville Street, by the press photographer Joseph Cashman. I, I can't do them anymore now because I'm arthritis and I'm not able to draw in the way that I call a last book. So just to describe what these banners look like, um, they're, they're very colourful, um, often primary colours. and they yeah, have they're mainly, That's on purpose, basically, because uh, the people who are watching something like this, they're mainly not watching them in an art gallery. They're, they're for a march going along a street or at the back of a march in a big square or, you know, uh, round circle somewhere or half circle and people are usually looking at them from you know 50 100 500 yards away so you want something brash and primary as you say that stands out to the also for the television cameras which is important these days you know for news items and that this is the main uh, one there of the Dublin lockout is a picture the famous cashman picture it's called uh, it was taken from uh, that building at the corner, that's right at the corner, across the corner bridge, looking up from the north side, a bit like the Flatiron building in New York, only wider. At uh, the corner of the Lear Street on Westmoreland Street, Cashman, the photographer, took it from, from that there at the time. I don't know how we get up there, how we knew it was going to be a riot, because it didn't look like it was going to be a riot. And what does it actually show? Because it, it, it looks uh, the people, uh, this just after Larkin made his big speech at uh, Clearly's, uh, which was the Imperial Hotel, he made a big speech in the balcony. Uh, he had gone in in the sky disguised as an old man uh, in top and tails uh, that Countess Marguerite had got him uh, the gear uh, I think it was her, it was her husband's uh, frock coat or something they got him in, in, a, in a carriage and uh, horses you know a, a Dublin cab into disguised into the Imperial Hotel and when he got in cast off the gear 
went out the window, onto the bar, the win- uh, French windows, onto the barricade street. So he was arrested then and big riot started, big crowd. But most of the big, the gas spread the better was half the people who were down in the country were just Sunday morning, boulevardiers, strolling along. And it was 21st of August, 1913. And they got caught up, people on their way back from Mass actually got caught, got up, and they all got battened equally as the workers, as the trade union militants did. And people were killed. Uh, James Nolan and James Bourne uh, were both so badly battened that they, that they, uh, one of them died on the, on the evening and the other succumbed to his wounds a, a few days later. And there was a poor young girl called Alice Brady. She was actually shot by a scab uh, that had been come over from across the water uh, that were brought in by William Martin Moore from the others to take the place of the striking workers. The scab was brought to trial and that for the cause was packed juries and all the rest in those days. Like, you know, and the establishment just gathered up. This is very detailed. Did, did you paint? No, did, the- actually, this is... And there, uh, it's a it's a blow up onto print of Cashman's picture. Now it's a really involved. Uh, it was the first time that it was ever done for you and your banners. Part of that, people were say painting one of the oil onto maybe linen or or cotton or whatever. But the trouble was that the paint used to crack. Uh, after only a few years, or maybe even less, so it wasn't permanent. They had to get them done every time. But so what they wanted by this type was something that would be permanent. That'll last a hundred years, no matter what weather is here. Oh yeah, it's weather prepared and all that. So with sun, moon, or rain or snow, it won't d- drain or drip or you know. Because uh, mostly it's far outdoors. It's only the very odd time that they've had them in um, galleries. Although they've been invited to galleries in New York, in in Havana, no less. And um, I got over to New York, one of the ladies say, Jim Chen was instrumental in helping out there because he was already in New York and he invited myself and Edna over and they had a New York Arts Centre in Clive Sullis in New York and um, in London and in Huddersfield and in Sligo Courthouse. The reason Sligo Courthouse thinks in my head is that the local Sligo Council who organised it neglected to tell the judge who was having a district court sitting on the Monday morning and they were still hanging up there, nobody told him. And they're all there when his court, he went fucking <laughs> He's looking at the world and went and all dragged him for contempt of court. But there were a few other places where we just can't remember offhand. Well, something I noticed is that um, you're always playing with symbology. So yeah. you have the, the figures that Connolly, Markovich, yeah. and you've got yeah. the yeah the plough and the stars. Yeah. What's the importance of these symbols for people? Because they're all historical symbols, aren't they? Yeah. Well, it's the same really w- with anything. That, that it's it's to give people some uh, to recognise, to look up to, to these heroic figures, basically, which they were, you know, and. Um, there was nothing kind of... Well, they were all for the ordinary, everyday person. They were themselves, while well, they were ordinary one way, they were extraordinary. And they were like icons to be looked up to that. Although, even though I have those... I also have members of the, you know, rank and file, the ordinary, including the ones earlier there whom we mentioned, Bourne and uh, Brady and uh, Nolan. There, this this was never said to represent the dirty uh, rank and file, lockout martyrs. Yeah, murdered on the streets of Dublin, which is what they were. It's like uh, it's real. Um, it's art with a purpose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It would be a middle a committed art. If if I wasn't say already, I didn't know. I wouldn't have been 
Well, I love art, you know. I, I wouldn't have been doing that. I'd probably been doing some other, you know, more vague form of modern art or something like, you know. But uh, this is what I wanted to do because I, I did feel there was a purpose. And uh, it was also uh, for a historical reason to make sure that these events wouldn't be forgotten, like uh, to help. Um, there's other people <laughs> done far more than I have done in that way. But it was, it was also to help that, you know, to... Um, and to honour, indeed, to honour these these great men and women, you know, who, who suffered greatly on behalf of the Irish people in general and the Dublin people in particular. I have to ask you, finally, before you have to go, about um, Game of Thrones. Okay. How did you end up in Game of Thrones? Well, uh, Game of Thrones, I just ended up in Game of Thrones by flu in that practically every actor in Dublin, uh, or an Irish actor's equity, was cast in it at some stage or another. They, they, they'd gone through so many small parts, like, you know. I, I honestly don't know why I got that particular part. I did uh, get, but even though it was only a couple of minutes, I was glad to be in it because the thing is so huge and successful around the world that your face gets seen and other directors might say and I did actually get other work out of that few minutes and some directors said I get that face would be ideal for us for this one I don't mean about me now in particular that I mean in directors in general if you're seen in something like that or Vikings there's another good one to be in just to describe your part it's when Theon Greyjoy comes to the Iron Islands right and he's coming back after a long period of exile yeah. and uh, he's expecting a warm homecoming yeah. but instead he meets Rump. <laughs> he meets Joe O'Leary <laughs> What's she carrying? Mirish oranges, wine from the arbor, and the air to Pike and the Iron Islands. The only living son of Balon Greyjoy. Me. I don't like wine. Woman's drink. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's fine casting or something. And I remember, yeah, I, he wanted a horse, so he needed and I wasn't too happy about going to the trouble of getting one for him, and I wasn't very obsequious to the king and that, and so uh, I was waiting until he uh, handed out the sponge looks before I went, so he gives me the coin and the relum, and I went and got the horse for him anyway. <laughs> but yeah, maybe that's why I was cast, I figured I was there. <laughs> You were the right well, man for the I job. Stand up the kings, all right. <laughs> I believe it. If I say so Well, thank you for that, fellow old lady. <laughs> yes, we are sure. And we out of the stock of kings. King Laird of Dune Laird of Harbour, no less. Who allowed his daughters to be Christianized by St. Patrick. Although he wouldn't become one himself. Strange conundrum, wouldn't it? So there's the line of the old Laird for you. Before we left Bram Stoker Park, Jur took a moment to reflect on his life. I've been blessed with a very good lady wife, Etna, of the O'Briens, and two dad and daughters, Dora and Claire, who have all been a help to me in all these things over the years, and a son, Dearman, who was great also, who passed on earlier last, God rest him, an RIP, and a, a, a notorious fire in Glasgow in a, in a guest house in, in 1998. But in, in the main, apart from that, that terrible blows was, I've been really blessed in other ways, I have to say. And uh, in fact, Teddy McGee, and because I was in 
I was in the uh, the first five Irish pictures, including Neil Jordan and Jim Sheridan, the bit, to be Oscar-nominated. He was the film critic for the Irish Star, and he called me Lucky Old Lady. Because if, if Lucky Old Lady is not in your film, you don't get nominated for Oscars. <laughs> and then it was in Braveheart, which actually won one, and Mel Gibson gets his Oscar. Lucky O'Leary. Lucky O'Leary, yeah. That's just one of your nicknames. I think you're called the Banner Man, is that? Yeah, yeah. Well, the Banner Man, yeah, yeah, sometimes, yeah, for those who know that end of it. <laughs> Very good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, and a great pleasure to talk to you, Ms. O'Leary, uh, Naomi, and thank you uh, for the hospitality. Thanks very much. <laughs> not long after this interview, Jura's beloved wife Etna passed away. And not long after that, on St. Stephen's Day 2018, Jura followed her at age 73. One of Dublin's great characters was laid to rest with an enormous funeral in Dublin, his banners carried along by the crowd, accompanied by the sounds of pipers. Like meeting Jura himself, it was a funeral that those who attended never forgot. Because the word colourful, which I hate, but a lot of people would describe Jarrah as very colourful. He was, you know, a big guy, but he had a very tender inner self, you know, which is a lovely guy to know. When you got past the sort of more gruff, colourful exterior. So people maybe wouldn't have seen his more gentler soul, which he had. Because of that, I think he had so many friends, you know. I've been at large funerals, but I think Jerry's funeral was the largest I've ever been at. And the number of people from various walks of life were at the funeral. They did a going away sort of tribute to Jer in the mansion house on the eve of the funeral. And it was packed to the rafters. And the bar was free. And I think they blew the <laughs> the bar budget on that night alone, as far as I remember. I think that Lord Mayor got into a bit of hot water. And the number of people who were there was incredible. I kept expecting Jared to show up, you know, because it was exactly his type of event. And, of course, he never did, unfortunately. I dreamed I saw Joe last night alive, you and me. And Joe, I say, ten years dead, I never died, said he. I never died, said he.